Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Today's guest on Cover Stories with Chess Life is the author of our September cover story on the Prague Chess Festival and, as of the just-released September 2021 FIDE rating list, the 26th ranked player in the world. The winner of the 2018 U.S. Championship and a stalwart on American international teams, Grandmaster Sam Shankland has already, at age 29, done almost everything there is to do in chess. He has written books for Quality Chess and for the Chessable platform. He has been a second for Grandmaster Magnus Carlsen. He has even appeared on a reality TV show, Kicking and Screaming, where he and partner Caleb Garmini survived the initial cuts, but were eliminated on the second episode. Shanklin's Prague performance is chronicled in our September issue, but his magical World Cup run, where he fell to Grandmaster Sergei Karyakin in the quarterfinals, after defeating Jobava, Arishchenko, uh, Jumabayev, and Peter Svidler, well, that's a must-read part of our October issue, so you have something to look forward to. He also just took part in the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz and the Sinkfield Cup, and I'm sure he'll have more to say about both of those events today. Well, today I speak to Sam, well, to be honest, I'm not really sure where he is. Um, so, hello, Sam Shankland. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life. Where am I speaking to you from this morning? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm at my home in Walnut Creek, California. So it's interesting because you you were just in St. Louis for both of those events. Yeah. And uh, you're going back in, in just a few days, right? Yeah, well, I did not know that I was going to be invited to the 960 event until like well into the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz. So I booked my travel assuming that I was just coming home and I didn't realize I'd be invited to that as well. Um, and when I got the invitation... Uh, I already had the ticket home, so I was like, yeah, I might as well have a little vacation and see my folks and see my dog. And uh, rack up the frequent flyer miles. There you go. <laughs> um, well, I, I definitely want to talk about all of that, but I, I feel like we should sort of start with Prague and then work forward to the present. Um, so you were kind enough to write a a really interesting account of your time at the Prague Chess Festival where you finished at an undefeated five and a half out of seven, so plus four. Mm-hmm. Um, and you defeated some pretty strong players. You defeated Jan Christoph Duda, who actually ended up winning the World Cup, uh, Niels Grandelius, Jordan Van Forest, and David Navarra. I, I didn't beat Niels. I beat Abbasov. Oh, I'm sorry. I must have read, misread the cross table. Um, it's interesting, though. The game you decided to annotate for us was your draw with Watashuk. Yeah. Why, why was that such an important game for you? Well, it was the only really 
tough game of the tournament for me. Uh, the re- it was like a very smooth sailing tournament the whole way, and this was the only game where I, I felt like I was worried at some point. And a lot of the time when people think of tournament victories, they look at their fantastic wins and, oh, isn't that great, isn't that sexy? But ultimately, uh, I think making sure that you don't go down when you get a difficult position is every bit as important. And uh, that's, that's something that I think is really understated a lot is you know you can win a few brilliant games but if you lose a couple too you're not going to win the tournament uh and i was very pleased with my defensive effort there because i had a very difficult position against the only guy in the field who i'd ever had any trouble with in the past and during the game i was very worried and then uh i was very proud of myself for holding it together it's also um i, I like the way you just described that but as, as, a, as a reader as a and as an editor it was interesting to me that you chose this, what was like a under 30 move draw. Yeah. Um, and all of the action, well, not all the action, but a lot of the action was in the notes and in the preparation and all the hard work you did before the game. Yeah. Um, and that's not often a game that you see being analyzed in a magazine. It's, it's usually, like you said, the flashy wins and the, the spectacular shots, but this is the kind of chess, if I'm not mistaken, that really sort of keeps you at the level you're at. Right. Yeah, I think so, and that's why I chose to annotate it. I don't really care much about showing off. I mean, of course, I like to sometimes. I think if you don't like to, you're not a human being. But, um, yeah, for the most part, I mean, I I chose this because it was a critical game, uh, and um, and I thought it it shed some light into the depth of of what might have otherwise looked like a relatively uh, sedate affair. It was actually really tense the whole way through, and... um, Lots of critical moments with very interesting lines. There's also just an interesting dynamic position where I had this pawn all the way advanced on C2 with black just very early in the game, but that where white was trying to capture it. And then, uh, but it's hard to get knight one in without allowing E5. And there's a lot of very interesting dynamics going on there. I mean, it, it's funny you say that it was a short game. In terms of moves, it was. In terms of time spent, it was not. Uh, you know, it was a very complex affair. And so even though there weren't that many moves played, Radek and I both spent quite a bit of time on it. So Prague was, was your first tournament, your first big tournament back after the pandemic. I, I, I went and looked actually at, at your games in Twick and, you know, you've got the random title Tuesday, you've got some online rapid events, but, but really this was the first big tournament for what, 16 months? Yeah, this was my first classical event in 16 months. And while, uh, I sort of have mixed feelings about these online rapid, I think they're just not even close to real chess compared to, to classical. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to uh, berate them in any way because in an era when classical chess could not be played and this was all there was, I believe that everybody who was organizing these events did an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, and they, they filled the void really, really well. And I, I can't commend them enough, but it just, at the end of the day, it's just not the same as classical chess. So how did you how did you transition your mindset back from you know playing blitz and rapid online to to getting ready for classical games? What well, what kind of work did you do to prepare for this? Well, I th- I don't know, I'm not sure I even really transitioned into the blitz and rapid online thing in the first place that well. Anyway, uh, I mean, I didn't play amazing. For example, at this online U.S. Championship, uh, I made fifty percent or I mean, something completely forgettable. Uh, and I I mean, I played a champion one Champions Tour event, and I, I missed qualifying. By, I finished in the bottom half of the cross field by half a point, so I missed qualifying for the quarterfinals uh, in the knockout stage and. I don't think I really played that amazing in these online events. They didn't really 
suit me very well. I've definitely noticed in terms of my ability to calculate 2D boards just mess with my head. Uh, why, why do you think that is? I'm just, it feels more like a video game. Whatever I've played on a 2D board in the past, it's almost always just been online blitz uh, when um, I'm probably, you know, have Dexter on the TV and might have a beer in the other hand and I'm just totally not taking it seriously and just playing on instinct. You know, it's, uh, it's very hard to have that format and then be really having the same level of intensity that you would in a classical game. Uh, and even when the time controls are a little bit longer, even when it's rapid and not blitz, like I just sort of, I just, my instinct is just move. Like, you know, don't think about it, just move. It, it, it's hard for me to like actually take it seriously. I don't know if other people have that problem. I'm sure there's guys who play on the internet all the time or like Twitch streamers who, for whom this is like the real deal and they're used to doing it all the time. I just wasn't ready for that. Now I sort of made the conscious decision during the pandemic that I did not want to uh, spend a huge amount of time and effort trying to transition to becoming a better uh, online blitz or rapid player. Uh, I did a little bit of work and I won the ILN Invitational ahead of like uh, Gelfand and Ivanchik and Dominguez, which was nice. But um, but yeah, I think for the most part, I was just generally focused more on classical chess. The training I was doing with Jakob all the time was still geared towards classical chess. And then I went to visit him for three weeks in Glasgow before the Prague Masters began, and we did some pretty intensive training uh, without much online stuff in the meantime. So that, I think, got me mostly back in shape. I, I definitely i am going to want to talk about your relationship with Jakob a little later on uh, as both your, your publisher and your business partner. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm curious here about the training because you know, I, I know there was a – an article on Chessbase India about your time in Glasgow before before Prague. Um, but what exactly, what kind of work does a grandmaster do to get ready to, to play in an event like this? Basically just a ton of exercises. I will sit at a board. Uh, he's, you know, sitting at his desk with a computer turned away and I've got, you know, sheets that I would pull out. I and mean, we, we do all of this stuff at killer chess training as well. That's uh, something I should be plugging, but basically like all the stuff you see at killer chess training, uh, these sheets, you know, he had like these giant piles of sheets and every morning that there would be one that would be friendly and one that would be killer. And I'm supposed to do both of these sheets. And, you know, you're really hoping you can get a hundred percent on the friendly and on the killer. You just want to do your best. And, um, and then we would do playing positions where I would have to play against his analysis and just basically solving lots of hard exercises over and over again, the kind of things that you really need to burn time and energy on. Uh, it's, it's much harder than playing, in my opinion. I think that you, uh, if you think about a game that you would play, uh, normally is going to be broken down into a subset of decisions, some of which are going to be easier and some of which are going to be harder. Well, in the training, we're really only doing hard decisions. Uh, so it's almost like if you're a baseball player, you know, you swing a, a bat with a donut on it uh, before you get in, before you got to get up to bat. It's because you want it to be heavier, uh, and it feels lighter when you start playing. And so it's just it was a lot of hard calculation work. Uh, I didn't do much openings or anything like that or much computer work. I did a little bit of work on my book, but yeah, it's just a ton of calculation work and well, it works. I mean, it's, it's, it's annoying. It's, it's tedious. It, it can be very frustrating, but if you do it over and over again, you will get better. There's no sense or buts about it. I'm going to want to ask uh, about that when we talk about <clears throat> your relationship to Jakob and, and killer chess training in a little while, but um it is interesting that, so I, I think a lot of amateurs, when they think of grandmasters getting ready for tournaments, they think it's all opening preparation. But for you, it's it doesn't seem to be that way. I actually do very little opening preparation in general when I'm on my own. Uh, if I have something very specific I want to look at, it's fine. But uh, starting about 
anywhere like four to six or seven days before a tournament, I really dial back uh, the, the calculation work and do a lot more on openings. And that is because uh, opening work, I think, has a, an enormous recency bias, both in terms of your ability to remember it and in terms of its relevance. If you like find some new idea like three weeks before a tournament and then someone else plays it a week later, you're like, well, there goes that idea. Uh, and so, and plus also, if you want to remember something, it's so much easier to remember it if you only did it a few days ago plus the calculation training is extremely draining it, it takes a lot of energy it's very tiring and uh you want to make sure you're fresh before a tournament so usually I, I i transition towards more opening work uh just a little bit before an event starts but really not that much i would say so after prague uh how long was it before you went to sochi for the world cup I stayed in Prague for two weeks. I mean, with the quarantine rules, there wasn't much reason to travel back home and quarantine at home and then quarantine later. And I'm already like close-ish to, to Russia. It's I'm already in Europe. Uh, so I just stayed in, in Prague for two weeks. And I, I love Prague. It's one, it's one of my two favorite cities in Europe uh, alongside Barcelona. And so it was uh, it was just nice. I, I spent some time there. I mostly rested once the pairing tree came out. I did a little bit of work preparing for uh, Jabava, Abimanyu, and... Um, and Arashenko, I, I looked briefly at even Isovich, but I didn't really look beyond that. What was it like to have to travel to Sochi uh, in the time of a pandemic? Even, even with vaccines being available, um, it, it still must have been a little nerve-wracking. I wasn't wildly nervous. I mean, I, I got vaccinated, so I, I understood that I, that's not like a completely bulletproof shield, but it, it's about as safe as you can get. In terms of COVID, I was significantly more nervous about actually testing positive and getting kicked out of the World Cup than I was about like my actual health. Um, but in, in terms of the travel, actually going to Sochi was the easy part. Going to Glasgow was much more demanding. They made me quarantine at Jakob's house for 10 days. Well, in Sochi, as soon as I got a negative test, I was cleared to go. So Sochi, the, the, the general vibe, um, was it weird being in a place where people were getting these positive tests and, and having to leave the competition? Did it sort of cast like a, a, a odd sort of pallor over the event? Yeah, a little bit, but I mostly just focused on my own game like any other. It didn't go that differently for me. Usually in tournaments, I just keep to myself and work hard. And when I'm not preparing, I'm resting. And you know, so I, I was aware that this was going on, but it didn't really affect me very much. You, uh, you, you had a buy in round one. Yeah. Um, and then you had, uh, then you had Joe Bava, the, the dancing grand. I don't know if you've seen him on Twitch. He, um, he, he dances. It's, it's wild. He just gets up and starts dancing instead of playing. I did a look a little bit at that. So I was, you know, just because I wanted to sort of understand what kind of man I was playing with. I knew uh, what Jababa's reputation was, but I never really met him or talked to him. Um, but yeah, I, I was aware of that. So uh, you, you got through Jababa mm -hmm. and then Arischenko, uh, Jumabayev, who knocked out Caruana, uh, and then Peter Svidler. Um which of these matches do you think was the, was the most interesting from your perspective? Definitely Arashenko. I actually think he was the toughest match for me, even harder than Karyakin. Um, I thought that he was the only one who actually deserved to beat me. And uh, he... Um, it was, uh, I mean, the first game, there was a very interesting, I, I saw the winning continuation even all the way to the end, but I, while I calculated it right, I, I didn't evaluate correctly. There was some very weird looking position where I have an exchange up in my uh, pawn on E7, but like he has, uh, my rooks are really bad and he's starting to scoop up pawns and he has this E7 pawn under control and I really wasn't sure 
what was going on. The computers last like plus four. It's not even close. But um, it was it was a really interesting dynamic game. And then game two, there were I, I was just outplayed at some point. I, I, I started off slightly better with black, and then was just totally outplayed to the point that I was a pawn down. And and there were some very interesting moments there too. I was very proud of finding knight e8 to d6, the right maneuver at the right moment, because he couldn't play d6 himself thanks to a perpetual check and. Um, and then the tiebreak. I mean, the the game I won was really interesting. I thought uh, there was uh, he had a winning continuation at one point that was next to impossible to find in rapid. But there were a lot of interesting tactical details and you know, his opposite side castling. And the, I don't know. Overall, I, I felt like this was the only match where I really felt like at some point I'm, I'm just going home. Um, but uh, I managed to get through. It's interesting to hear you to speak about this because. Some of these things, uh, you, you talk about them in the annotations you did for our October issue. Yeah. Um, and what I really appreciated about them was how brutally honest you were about your feelings, about uh, your decisions, about how you felt uh, in, 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 in the different positions. Um, you do have this reputation of being someone who is very blunt and very honest i'm I've, yeah i've always been and i calls it like i sees it kind of guy it frustrates me when people say things they don't mean and then i just don't understand it like i think the world would be a lot easier if people just said what they meant and weren't so sensitive when other people said what they meant but no i mean i in general in chess i think you're not going to get very far if you're not extremely objective about what you're doing well and what you're not doing well and what you've seen and what you've not seen it's very easy in your annotations to like even convince yourself you saw something when you didn't or or make excuses i'm just i'm not that guy i i do my best to be as objective as possible at every single juncture every time i'm looking at the game but it, it's not only the, the chessboard itself, though. Um, you know, for example, I was reading your interview in New in Chess in the, the the issue that just came out. Yeah. The, um, and um, and there, when you were talking about the effect that some of the transfers to uh, U.S. Chess have had on you, um, I mean, it would have been very easy for you to sort of be, you know, to be very realpolitik and just sort of sugarcoat your feelings but you didn't do that no i mean obviously it's it's a big negative effect on the the players who grew up in the u.s i mean i've had organizers just tell me straight up point blank we can't invite you to your tournament because we already have too many u.s players and they're referring to players who did not develop here uh but at the end of the day like you cannot blame these people if they're not breaking the rules i mean i personally don't i think the rules are very relaxed in terms of who's allowed to switch but that's my opinion the rules are in place and if they are and if these people are not breaking any rules i can't blame them for it uh so you know at the end of the day it's it's a it's definitely a big negative impact on me that this can happen but you can complain about it or you can try to get better i mean if you if i were to like imagine two separate worlds imagine i spent like a huge amount of time and effort campaigning for rules changes to to not let them in or whatever and then oh finally i make the olympic team as a result or if you take a universe where i just ignore that and focus on what i can first of all a i don't think that's going to work uh or b if you take a universe where i ignore that and focus on just becoming a better player and i make the olympic team because i'm higher rated than them which universe do you think will make me a happier person uh in general i mean look i don't like it. I, don't, I think it's normal not to like it. I think anybody rational wouldn't like it in my situation. But at the same time, you can't do anything about it. Just focus, play well. That's that's the best. That's the best. And ultimately, uh, victory is the best revenge. There's no question about that. So you made it to the quarterfinals of the World Cup, um, and there you met 
Sergey Karyakin, former world championship challenger. Um, and you guys had an epic battle uh, that ultimately went his way. Yes. Um, what lessons do you take away from that experience? Um, well, uh, I think I didn't, I was probably a bit too objective in my preparation. The second game, I prepared some very forcing line in the French to try to get him out of, uh, to sort of kill the game. It's, it's an unpleasant position for black that I was aiming for, but I thought if I, if I prepared deeply enough, I was just making a draw and, uh, I didn't focus enough on the positions that he could have played where he's like, all right, fine. I just want a game. I won't be better. And I thought, uh, also it taught me maybe some, a little bit more about objectivity in myself. I believed I understood the Kings and Unitrack structures well enough to just play them well, and I was wrong. There was there were things that I didn't get about them, and that came back to haunt me. In hindsight, I just wish I had played the Sicilian. It's what I know best. It's what I feel best. And if I had ended up worse, I could have just played. Um, but I don't know. I mean, during the match, I didn't feel like he was really stronger than me. Um, he was obviously a very good player, but I... It, it, it's sort of, I always knew that these top guys with the highest ratings, they're, they're humans. I mean, I always knew that they make mistakes like anyone else, but this was sort of a match where I had already been on a roll and I didn't really feel like I was getting outplayed or anything. Game one, I just thought I played better than him. I mean, uh, it's being able to outplay a former world championship challenger from like an equal end game from the start to the point that you're just much better. Uh, and then winning, I I, it sort of gave me the sense, look, these guys are human. They make mistakes. I always knew that, but it, it really made me feel like I can just beat them on any given day. Was it different? I mean, to, to hear you say that is, is interesting because I mean, you've played, you know, some of the world's top players, yeah. um, just about all the world's top players. And, and to hear you say that with regard to Karyakin and this particular situation is, was there something particularly revelatory about this experience? Or yeah, was this so basically this was, I think, the first time I recall that... I mean, I've beaten top players before. I've, I've won plenty of games against them, but this was the first time where I believe I beat one without having to... Real, I mean, okay, maybe the Duda game before, but I really didn't have to do anything special this game that I won. I, I got absolutely nowhere out of the opening. I just sort of made some normal-looking moves, and next thing you know, I outplayed him and won. Almost every other time that I've I've beaten someone like in the high 2700s, it's because they've either done something really dumb or because I played a really good game. One of those two had to have happened for me to have won, and this time it just felt like I just played a totally normal game. Nothing particularly notable happened, and I won. And then, actually, there was another game like that in Sinkfield Cup against Mamed Yarov, where I just got absolutely nowhere out of the opening. I got some you know, slightly worse endgame and then just won. Uh, this was a sign to me that I'd probably gotten stronger if all of a sudden I'm able to beat these guys without doing something special as opposed to when I had to before. This is a good way to lead into the uh, to the events in St. Louis, where you you, you referenced the Mamajarov game. Um, you you played in the Rapid and Blitz, yeah. and then you played in the the main event, the Sinkfield Cup. Um, you've been pretty open and honest that you don't think Rapid and Blitz are your strong suit. You don't specifically train for it like I think some players do. Yeah, um, Blitz much more so than Rapid. I played totally fine in the Rapid segment there. Yeah, so I mean, you finished in the in the middle of the field in the rapid. Yeah, uh, you had a tough go in the blitz. Yeah, um, but then the Sinkfield came along, and I, I saw a tweet where you were you were critical of your play, but at the same time, I think you sort of felt reassured that even though you think you didn't play very well, you ended up at just minus one. Yeah. So yeah, I think I played absolutely horrible. I mean, there were so many things I did wrong, like. Uh, 
in order, Jeffrey played the troll version of the Accelerated Dragon with Knight H5, Knight F6. I got a completely winning position, like 15 moves, and then I didn't beat him. Then I was better out of the opening with Black against Maxime. After like three moves of playing on my own, I'm borderline lost. And then finally, when I had like saved the game to the point that we're like one or two moves away from a draw, I spent like one minute and allowed a trivially lost pawn ending. Uh, I missed like a three move win against Dominguez at the end. I was. Uh, worse out of the opening against Mama Jara with white in 10 moves. I was basically dead after against Wesley out of the opening in like 20 moves, in like 15 moves. Like just so many things went wrong. Like there's so many things. I just played really, really badly. So much worse than I had played in, uh, in Sochi, much less Prague where I played even better. So, and I just thought it was a really good sign that like the lowest level of my play is like 2,700. Uh, cause that's the results that I registered, uh, the performance rating I had was about 2,700 when I was just playing atrociously bad chess, so much worse than what I would normally hold the standards I would normally hold myself to. And that's a really good sign because if you're never going to just always be on form, nobody is, uh, that's, that's impossible. And it's a very, very good sign if your off form is still like pretty good. So you're going back to St. Louis in just a few days for the, for the 960 and then um, I guess you'll be back again for the U.S. Championships next month. Yeah. Um, what's after that for you? What What are the next tournaments? What are the next big events after the U.S. Championships? Well, in between the 916 and the U.S. Championship, I have European Club Cup. After that, I have zero events planned. Uh, I probably wouldn't mind having some of like October, November off, uh, but I I hope I can play like Waikanze, for example. But of course, it depends if I get invited. Uh, of course, I have the FIDE Grand Prix, but that's not until deep into 2022. Um, I have nothing planned after that. I think I don't even know if there are any tournaments planned after that. It's such a weird time. The tournaments are sort of popping up uh, with much shorter notice than they were before. So when you say that, uh, do you mean before the pandemic or just before? The before the pandemic. pandemic. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, let's talk about your early days in chess. Uh, you, as I understand it, you didn't start at age four like so many of our uh, young wunderkinds. Uh, but so, so how did you get your start? And, and, and when did you sort of begin to think that you might be able to make this a career? Yeah, unlike just about everybody else, both in the U.S. and, and abroad, I, I started late. I had a totally normal American upbringing. I went to school and everything just like any other kid, uh, which is pretty rare among you know sort of high-rated players. Uh, but yeah, my, my father taught me to move the pieces when I was maybe six. I didn't think much of the game, and we never really did anything with it. And then it was only when I took my an after-school class with the Berkeley Chess School when I was in fourth grade that I started to enjoy the game more. Uh, and, you know, I, I got, there was one kid who was just the best kid in the school. Everybody knew it. And I had not been to the chess club or anything. And I took the after school class and went, I was like, okay, well, anybody want to play with this kid? And then I just beat him in like 10 moves. And so in general, I think people are sort of predisposed to like things that they're good at. And I got good at chess pretty quickly. So, but yeah, I, I didn't play my first tournament until like, or I was around like first rated tournament. So I was like 11. Uh, what nowadays people like masters are almost grand masters at that age uh it was definitely a big handicap to start late i think it was an even bigger handicap that i had a totally normal upbringing i went to school i in the traditional timetable i did i wasn't homeschooled i didn't i was just a, had a totally normal american upbringing but um uh, but I, while I do think it was a handicap, I don't think it was as big a handicap as a lot of people make it out to be, you know, when people choose to, for example, homeschool their kids and not, and just have them do chess all the time, uh, because they don't believe they'll be able to compete if they, if they go to school. 
I'm not totally sure I agree with that. It's a handicap, but I don't think it's one that can't be overcome. And I think my career sort of proves that. You um you cracked the the top 100 for the first time in 2014. Yeah, and uh, that was the year that you had uh, an absolutely tremendous result at the Olympiad. Um, and and then later uh, next year, you, I think you had a good result to, as well at the World Team Championship when you were playing first board for the American team. Yeah. Um, looking back, I mean, what what do you take from those events? What what seems memorable from those from those first really big steps in elite chess? Well, I mean, if we're talking specifically about Team America, I mean, it's a tremendous honor to play for my country. I mean, I, part of going, I mean, you talked about going to school, having a normal American upbringing. Part of that normal American upbringing is standing for the Pledge of Allegiance of before every class. I mean, it was for as long as I can remember. It, it's just, it was, I've always wanted to you know, play for my country. And so, uh, of course, that means there's a lot of pressure, but uh, you know, ultimately, I, I think I'm pretty good at handling it. Uh, I think that, I'm not that great a chess player compared to a lot of guys of a similar level, but one of the reasons that I've won a lot more tournaments than someone you'd expect of like a low to mid 2700, you know, like, you know, uh, just a lot more overall tournament victories. I think one of the big reasons is I handle pressure well. And when, you know, you have last round games with all the money and everything on the line, I'm able to just stay focused and play the same as I would any other. And that's, uh, I guess, you know, I, I, people often talk about, Oh, I'm so nervous. It's my first, you know, I'm one of these big events for me that just never was the case. So at that Olympiad, you, you had the, the curious distinction of retiring a legend. Um, you, you defeated Judith Pulgar in her last serious game. Yeah. And then you had the same thing happen, I guess what, in, in early 2019 with Vladimir Kramnik, correct? Yeah. Looking back, does that, thinking about their early retirement, I, when I was, when I was doing my research, I thought, my goodness, it, it must've been strange to, to have this experience of not, you know, not retiring one of them, but both of them. Does that ever get you thinking about your own longevity in chess? I mean, do you expect to be playing at age 50? Well, uh, first of all, I wouldn't call that an early retirement. I'm what, Judith was like 37. I guess that's a little bit early. And I'm glad he was maybe like in his early 40s. I think that's a pretty normal age to retire. Uh, I more thought it was amusing. Like, wow, I'm, I'm so bad at chess. I lost to this idiot. I got to I gotta quit now, right now. But um, <laughs> uh, uh no, I mean, I, I will certainly have a life after chess. I do not think I will be playing at 50. I, I don't even know if I'll be playing at 40. I mean, a huge amount of, uh, of what makes me the player I am is being able to work harder than my opponents. I've sort of made no secret of the fact that I don't believe I'm a wildly talented player. Um, but I work really hard. I make the right decisions. I, I, I tend to have a lot more energy and, uh, than my opponents because I'm also very fit. But when you're talking about basically your entire game plan revolves around having more energy, being better prepared, taking it more seriously, things like that. At, at some point, you know, you're, I think people like that tend to age a lot worse than people for whom chess is very, comes very naturally. And so I definitely think that I will be one to sort of step aside from the game when I'm, when I'm ranked 40 or so, but that's, there's still a lot of time between now and then. And, you know, my feelings on the matter can certainly change. I mean, I think about, you know, I'm 29 now, if you're talking about 40 years old, that's 11 years. And I think about where I was when I was 18 and how different my life is. I mean, if you asked me to make decisions when I was 18 about what I would do when I was 29, I mean, it'd be a preposterous thing to do. So, uh, while I am aware that it, retirement will certainly come for me at some point and you know at least probably when i'm just middle-aged uh i don't want to think much about that now it just seems like it's not a relevant discussion to be having until until it's really time to think about it in the near future as opposed to the distant future as uh, as someone who's 45 it, it 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 hurts a little bit to hear 37 and 40 being uh retirement time but i guess i'm, I'm not an elite player so 
there, there's still hope for me to pots her on. Um. <laughs> well, it's, it's different. I mean, it's in terms of chess, a huge part of it is just raw processing power in your brain. And, you know, sad to say, your brain just starts slowing down like much, much younger than anybody wants to admit. It probably is at its peak, like in your late teens. But basically when you, uh, uh, you gain more experience as you get older and you gain more knowledge. And in almost anything you do, the extra experience is going to mean a lot more than like some whatever 3% slower processing speed or, or whatever you might have. Uh, and that's, um, so that's why you know the best talkers and lawyers are not 18 year old kids. And frankly, even in chess, the best chess players are not 18 year old kids either. The our age, our, the age that we peak tends to be higher than that, much higher even. Uh, but it does mean that our peak age is lower than for almost anything else outside of sports. So, so speaking of of decisions that that uh, you may have made differently, I don't know. In in 2016, you were on reality TV. Yeah. Um. What was that experience like? And looking back, what do you think of the experience now? Well, it was definitely very different from chess. Uh, if I, my biggest regret from that show was that I came in expecting it to be an objective and fair competition like chess, uh, when it just wasn't and reality TV isn't. And I should have been aware of that before I came in and adjusted my strategy accordingly. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't mean to ding it in any way. It was just a different world. But I, I got really bent out of shape when... I perceived things as being unfair, like not being able to compete for the food and then being put up for elimination when all I had done was perform well just because someone wanted me in elimination. That was sort of not the kind of thing I was used to in like the very objective world of professional chess. Uh, but I think if I had done a little bit more homework and watched it, because I'd never seen any reality TV until I'd been recruited for this show. If I had like actually watched a bit more and done the actual preparation for it the same way I would for chess, you know, make sure you know what you're signing up for. I think I would have handled it very differently and perhaps I would have lasted longer. Um, but, uh, it was tough. I mean, I got emailed, you know, one day at first I thought it was my friends playing a prank on me. Um, but, uh, then I, I, I auditioned, I went down to Los Angeles, uh, where I, I met the producers and stuff. And from there I flew directly to St. Louis for the U S championship. And I didn't, and I didn't hear from them for like, weeks or like a couple of weeks and uh this show was scheduled to film right after u.s championship and so i uh i just thought okay this was fun i got a free ticket to los angeles and st louis out of it but they, they didn't choose me they've had tons of people to choose from and and then when the like during round 10 of the u.s championships and i got a text message from a phone number i didn't recognize uh we need your head circumference and for your helmet and your chest circumference for your life vest please send them to us immediately and uh I went home for like two days and then was straight out to the jungle. So I had very little time to actually prepare. Yeah. For anyone who, uh, is it available streaming anywhere? Can people find it? Those episodes? Uh, I think the best way to find it is to just watch it illegally on YouTube. Uh, I hate to suggest something that would break copyright laws, but I don't know of a way to watch it by paying for it and like finding it the right place. So I, I guess that's what I would have to advocate. Um, but yeah, whatever my friends have watched it, they've just like streamed it illegally, I think. But, um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't know where you can, you can watch it and pay for it properly. Well, if, if any of our listeners do have a line on this, let us know and we'll put it in. We'll, we'll yeah, put it please in the do, because I'd rather not advocate yeah. illegal activities. <laughs> um, so so two know. years later, after your sojourn in the jungle, <laughs> um, you took a very big step professionally. You, uh, you won the U.S. championship for the first time. 
what was that experience like to 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 win the championship of, of a of a country that you know that that you played for, but uh, that, that means so much to you? Well, obviously, I mean, you can take a look at the picture of what I looked like the moment I won. I was a pretty happy camper. I mean, I, it, it had always been my dream to you know win the U.S. championship, play for the U.S. team, and I had done half of that. Uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, it was also just forgetting the the honor and glory of it. It was also my biggest tournament victor i had like a 2890 performance or something for 2886 i think it was i had like a really really good performance and i just played really well i certainly got a bit lucky at times but yeah i mean that was a breakthrough year i've been working really hard for a long time when i first started working with Jakob, i came to mid 2600 and then i had made it to the mid 2600 but i was stuck there for a few years and then you know to finally break through and it I sort of to immediately then prove that the u.s championship wasn't a fluke by winning two more tournaments back to back and then jumping up to 27 27 or something like that, uh, which is even higher than I am today by a few points. I was just really happy with myself for you know finally breaking through. But I really felt like I was that strong. I mean, I look back at that U.S. championship. I got lucky at moments, but I also think like I I could have scored more points. Like I was winning against both Nakamura and Carwana, and I drew both those games. I mean, I I could have made like plus eight if I had won those. That would have been wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was a great performance, but to think you to you could go plus eight in that field would have been. Yeah, I mean, the, the only game I really... I, I got a bit lucky against Jerebuk. I was worse out of the opening, but after that, I played him pretty convincingly. The only game I really got lucky there was against Okobian. You were playing, and you were playing all over the place and having good results, and, and then the pandemic hit, and you kind of had to hit the brakes and, and, and just regroup. Well, prior to the pandemic, my life fell apart in 2019, and I lost all my rating. That was a much bigger deal, but, uh, you know... And and you, well, and you do. You talk about this at the beginning of the Prague piece, uh, and you reference it at the the beginning of the the piece you wrote for us about the World Cup. Yeah. Um. You, you know, you're you suffered uh, physical problems with a uh, getting your hand cut up right before the World Cup. Uh. You know, relationship problems. Um. Your your parents got sick. It was. I mean, it was like a trifecta of things that could just knock you out. Yeah, there was that, and then I didn't get to play the FIDE Grand Prix. I played forty consecutive games against lower-rated players, playing against the drawish nature of the game itself. All of a sudden, my my spot on the Olympic team was all of a sudden up for grabs again. Uh, there was a whole lot of things that just went horribly wrong that year. And then, of course, comes along the pandemic. Um, but as as you say at the beginning of the Prague piece, you you feel like you were pretty well situated to ride it out well oh yeah after everything that happened to me in 2019 i totally didn't care that i was stuck at home with no tournaments that was the least of my concerns and and when you kept busy i mean you 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 wrote um or you i don't know if you writing is the right word for it but you authored a number of courses for chessable yeah i i came out with a full repertoire based on playing d4 for white and the semi-slav and classical sicilian for black uh that i'm very happy with it's been very well received and so that's um that has certainly been was kept me busy. Um, I did some work on my next book, Theoretical Rook Endings. Now that's a that's going to be a monster book, of course, as you can imagine, and it's still I don't even think it'll be published for possibly even another year at this point, just because I'm getting busy. But yeah, there was that, and then I I, I spent a lot of time working out. Uh, I've always taken physical exercise and dieting very seriously, but it's just hard to maintain the same level of intensity when you're traveling. Um, I can't really go to the gym when I'm playing a tournament, and so. I really got very strong and back into like really good physical condition. I already noticed that just from this last trip, I've already lost like 10 pounds. My arms are just not as big. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that, that was great. And yeah. Well, and these, these, uh, 
all this work, all this writing work uh, for Chessable and also this forthcoming book for, I, I would assume, for Quality Chess. Yeah, it is. Um, this is not the first bit of writing you've done. You've got two books out already with your uh, your coach's imprint, Quality Chess. Um, and both of them are incredibly well-received. Yeah. So talk a little bit about those books and let's see if we can't sell a few more for you. Well, basically when it comes to writing or producing content, uh, I think nobody writes books to get rich or at least nobody with a brain. Uh, but I, I did it because it would be an excuse for, to force me to study something that I wanted to study anyway. So for example, I was noticing, cause I do a little bit of teaching as well. When I was, uh, when I, when my students would ask me about various things about pawns and even when I understood like the best move and I was trying to explain something about the structure, I was finding that I was struggling to explain it. And so if you understand something intuitively, but you can't really explain it, that's probably a sign that you don't understand it as well as you might think or as well as you might want. And so I just decided I'd, I would like to learn about about this stuff and then uh, people if they want can I will write a book about it and people can come with me on my journey if they so desire and um, and so it's funny to say like you know oh I, I wrote this book for myself but and you know I don't care about my readers or anything I mean that's that's an exaggeration but for the most part that's that's how it works I was just studying something that I thought I would like to study and you know, invited people to come along for the ride. Same with Small Steps 2 as well. Um, in terms of the Chessable stuff, uh, it's sort of hard to play all this analysis once it's already been published. I still do in rapid games sometimes, uh, but it was mainly just to keep my analytical skills sharp. I was doing very not much of my own opening work uh, for myself during the pandemic just because I believe in that huge recency bias. And if there's no tournaments coming up, I'd rather like train calculation and stuff and then save opening work for right before the events. Uh, but yeah, that's sort of been the process for theoretical Rook Endgames coming out. It's going to be the exact same thing. I am writing it because I want to learn about theoretical Rook Endgames, and people are welcome to come along for that ride. So regular listeners of this podcast, they, they know, I, I think, especially from my talk with Jakob, um, that I'm a, a member of this killer chess training. And so I, I've seen some of what Sam has been doing there, both in terms of his Rook Endgame work, um, which absolutely blew my mind. I could not keep up with it. It was, uh, I mean, incredibly deep, interesting analysis. Um, but also you, you did a course there on opening preparation. Um, and I, I got to tell you it, it, and you know, I've, I've paid grandmasters to show me how they work with computers. Um, it blew my mind. So when, when, when you're talking about doing opening preparation, uh, and opening work for the chessable courses, um, you have this reputation of being one of the most organized analysts around. I think uh, Jan Ludwig Hammer uh, put this out on Twitter. He said, you, you just blew everybody else away in terms of your organization and your depth of preparation and your attention to detail. How did you get so organized? And, and do you have any tips for those of us who are, are trying to organize our data in a similar way? Yeah, I don't even think it was that hard. Uh, I was disorganized like everybody else. And then one day I just decided this is a problem and I'm going to fix it. And I probably spent like the better part of a week just organizing everything I had already done before and bringing and giving, making my own organizational system that I would use in the future. And then ever since then, I've never had to do anything about it. But basically, uh, I don't even think my analysis in a lot of cases is that much deeper than anyone else's. But the fact that it's really well organized and I know exactly where it is, if you check something like a year ago and then it's going to come up for a game and it doesn't get played and then it comes up today, 
uh, or it's going to be relevant today, you're probably not going to remember it particularly well. So what you're going to need to do is have mnemonics, both in English and in chess-based symbols, explaining to you the key ideas of the position. And uh, that will help you remember it much more quickly. And ultimately, my biggest philosophy is that I don't study the openings to try to get an advantage or get an edge in preparation. I study the openings uh, to try to better understand the middle game. And so if you want to better understand the middle game, you need to have uh, analysis explaining what the key themes are so that you can and just explaining it to yourself is, is helpful enough when you so one thing one thing that sort of came from was when I was some years back I uh, I organized a couple of guys uh, that I worked with in the US and I organized opening projects where I said okay we're going to divide the labor so we're not going to work on the same thing no one's going to like double check you or anything so I needed to choose people who I could trust blindly when I needed to uh, but um but I was like, okay, you're going to do this project, you're going to do that, you're going to do this line, I'm going to do that line, and then altogether we'll create an entire NIDOR for whatever, entire Grunfeld, whatever you, whatever opening we've chosen. And uh, this was many years ago, of course, but I already understood then that if you, um, that if you, uh, uh, if you were checking the analysis yourself, then you're going to intuitively develop some understanding for the position just while you're clicking around with the computer. And that's just sort of something that naturally happens. Uh, but you are not going, that knowledge or that intuition for the position will not be present in somebody who is just reading the notes that you've written. So you have to be very explicit uh, because they haven't done the process of clicking around. You have to be very explicit in terms of what moves are important uh, and what ideas are are coming up in the middle game. So like when you should be, like if there's some if there's something that you should be saying, well, you generally want to meet knight b6 with a4, but otherwise you don't play a4 very often. Then when somebody plays knight b6 in some position when you where you didn't have in your file, you have a better sense of what the best move might be. Now it might not be knight, it might not be a4, but you know immediately that's what you should be looking at. So these are things that I did. In terms of the actual organization, the way I do it is I just have one big master opening database. It's got some like 2,300 uh, lines in it, 2,300 games. And then uh, I organize it by, so the first thing you should have is the ECO code. And then I name it all by, I use the white player name and black player name. So I'll have white player name could be like, Sicilian dash Nidorf, Bishop G5, Knight BD7. And then the next one could be Sicilian dash Nidorf, and the black player name would be Bishop G5, E6. Now, of course, for both of those, it will be much more detailed than that. They're going to have a lot of different files. But essentially, then, if you if you go to chess space and you click on uh, first the black player name at the top to organize it by black player name, then the white player name, then ECO, it will organize it by the last one clicked first. So the first thing it will see is the ECO code, and you will have... Um, and it will organize it by the ECO code. Then when two lines have the same ECO code, it will look at the white player name. So like, for example, if this is Sicilian Nidorf, if we were to go into more detail and say, Bishop G5, Knight BD7, F4 is the, or I'll say Bishop G5, Knight BD7 is the white player name for two different files, and it looks at the black player name. And then it would say, okay, F4 is one for the black player name, and then Bishop C4 is one for another, and then Queen E2 is one for another. It will group all of these together. And so this way, whenever you produce new analysis, it will always be the last game. If you just click black, white, ECO, again, it should file it into the right spot. And for anyone who is looking to, to see this in action, because I, I know... Um even even having watched Sam do this, I, it, it's confusing a little bit to listen to it if you're not really a chess-based expert. Yeah. Um, if you want to see this, this is a, a recorded course that is available through chess, uh, Killer Chess Training, correct? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's all on killer chest training. I've done a lot of work there and I'm very proud of uh, the course, the courses we've done there. And again, so as, as a disclaimer, um, I am a paying member of this group. So I, I don't get it for free. I, I pay my money just like everybody else. And, um, you know, I, I struggle with the, even the friendly, the, the, the friendly homework. Cause it's, it's very difficult for even, you know, for, for an A player like myself. Um, you're part owner of this and, and, and part of I, I, the relationship with your, one of your co-owners, uh, who is also your coach and publisher, Jakob Agar, it seems to have been really formative for you and really important in, in helping you get to where you are today. Yeah. He's I think, I mean, I've certainly had a lot of people have had an influence on my career. Uh, he is definitely the one with the biggest influence of anybody I've ever met. Uh, he was the one who taught me what actual calculation work was. Uh, and I'm really glad that my relationship with him extends far beyond, you know, trainer pupil, but also into business. Uh, I think he's done a fantastic job with killer chest training. Uh, in general, I do believe that he's the best chest trainer in the world, bar none. Um, I mean, maybe when, when Divoretsky was around, I'm sure that that would have been competitive. But now that Divoretsky is sadly gone, I think Jakob is just the best trainer in the world. And I'm, uh, I'm, I've not only learned to, to become a much better chess player while working with him, but also I think I've learned to become a better trainer myself. I mean, that's not my main thing. I, I don't teach that much. But the time I spend with, you know, chessable killer chess training with my private students, uh, I think has improved a lot because of what I've learned from him. And uh the, the stuff we see at killer chest training, it's just literally like what I do with Jakob, like all the time, uh, over and over again. And it's, it's tough, but like it, it works well for me because, you know, once if I just tell somebody, this is sort of just me being blunt again, like you would say, but the bluntness of it is it is tough. It's often not fun. It is tedious. It is frustrating. It's, it's like a lot of work. It's difficult. You know, chess is a difficult game, and this the stuff we're doing is very difficult, tough decisions over and over. It is time demanding. It, there's times when you just, like, really hate having to do it. If you do it, you just get better. And if people don't do it, you're going to get better than them. Like there's, I, I really believe in that. And, you know, I wish there were some, if there was some easy way to get better at chess without that much work, you'd just have like grandmasters everywhere. Uh, and, but there isn't, and this stuff does work. It turns people into champions. One of the things that, uh, that keeps popping up, uh, during some of Jakob's lectures is the, the Shankland rule. Yeah. So not, not many players get to have a, a, a rule of thumb named after them. So can you tell us exactly what the Shankland rule is? Yeah, so I don't know if I was the first one to come up with this idea, but I was the first one to popularize it like crazy, which is uh, the premise is if there is a, a move that you really want to play, something like that's very strategically desirable, and your opponent is preventing you from doing so, the first question you should always ask yourself is what happens if I do it anyway? And this is where strategic calculation comes into play. Uh, so there's one game that I, I love to show is Carlson Gelfand from the candidates, I guess it was 2012 or 13, the, the only year he put the candidates, where, where Carlson played B4 in a position where it made sense it will gain space, it will get ready to play B5 and dislodge a bishop on C6 to challenge a pawn on B7. But there was a huge amount of calculation that went into this because after AB4, AB4, there was knight H5, rook A1, there was rook A1 directly, there was knight H5, bishop F6. There was a ton of complications that resulted from this. Uh, and I'm sure that Magnus had to calculate this very closely. And at the end of all that, okay, fine, you've done like this huge amount of calculation and congratulations, you made like a, a slightly space 
case gaining pawn move as opposed to you know winning material. But that's sort of the concept of strategic calculation. And so the Shanklin rule would have said like B4 is the move I really want to make. It looks like there's all these problems with it. What happens if I do it anyway? And you'll see lots of examples like this in books. Like you'll see, for example, um, if you think about uh, there's a, the famous Kasparov Kramnik Berlin game where Kasparov just played like e6 sacrificing the pawn he just hangs it to like three different pieces and there's nothing supporting it at all but he's opened up the lines for his bishops again it's that same principle it's like I, the move i really want to play is e6 it looks like i can't do it because the pawn hangs what happens if i do it anyway uh these are this is a, a thought process that will often help you push through and find moves uh and and help you play a good strategic chess because you're using calculation to supplement it well sam most of the other questions I had, we've actually answered already. So I do want to end with a, a new sort of feature here we've got on this podcast. Um, do you know, uh, did, did, have you ever seen James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio? Do, do you remember this? No. Show? Okay. It's, it's, it's an old show where, um, I think it was on Bravo before Bravo was just reality TV, um, where they would interview actors and they would have this this questionnaire that they would give them that was based on originally based on one that was done by Marcel Proust and that had been modified by Lipton's mentor, Bernard Pivot. Um, and so I've taken that and I've changed it a little bit to, to avoid some questions that might be tough on a podcast like this, like um, what's your favorite curse word? Well, I, you know, everybody can answer that, but unfortunately this is a family friendly kind of thing. So we can't really go there. I have a lot to pursue. <laughs> um, so I, I've made this a little more chess friendly and family friendly, but I'd like to ask you 10 questions and get your immediate response. So just whatever comes to mind. Question number one, what is your favorite non-profanity word? Um, checkmate. What is your least favorite word? Just. Why? Uh, so just in the context of chess is usually used under one of two circumstances. One is to try to kill the discussion. Oh, just this, just knight f5. Uh, when it's almost an implication like, oh, I've seen everything. There's nothing more to see here. This is chess. That's almost never true. It's a way, it strikes me as a way of trying to oversimplify something that really is not meant to be oversimplified. And whenever I find students saying the word just, oh, I just want this, it's almost always wrong. The other time I've heard just used in the context of chess is to justify unambiguous thought. Oh, I have a really dangerous deck. Oh, no, no. I just want to give him an isolated pawn. Just, just give me something really small when it, you really want to be going for something more uh, decisive. Okay. Interesting. That, I think we just got some interesting insight into you. By the way, it, the, the questionnaire doesn't have to be just about chess, but if chess things come to mind, that's perfect too. But yeah, so just is my least favorite word then. Perfect. Um, question three, what is your dream of happiness? That will be censored. Fair enough. Question four: Towards what faults do you feel do you do you feel most indulgent? Um, I don't know. I I definitely speak my mind too much, uh, and I I have a filter uh, in terms of what I should say and shouldn't say. I think the fault that I'd be most indulgent about is I ignore that filter too often, even when I know I shouldn't. Who would you like to see on a new banknote? New banknotes. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen. Interesting choice. Only as a, only in character, not as himself. It, has <laughs> to be, it must be a character. Him as himself would just be boring. What opening do you love? Nightwolf. What opening do you hate? Berlin. Very popular answers. What profession other than yours would you like to try to attempt? Um... 
This probably is an unusual answer that you're not used to. I think if I were grown up in like rural Kansas or something, just given my general attitude and attention towards fitness or whatever, and sort of killer instinct and, you know, very organized thing. I think in an alternate life, I would have made a fine Marine. Interesting. I could, I could see that. Um, what profession would you not like to attempt? A uh, wedding planner. Last question, Sam Shankland. Yeah. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Rest assured, I will not arrive there. That that's not where I'm going. <laughs> but if, but if there's a mistake, like, uh, like no spoilies. Uh, um, if there were some kind of really, really egregious mistake, uh, then I actually got let in. Um, well. I would say uh, the gym is always open. Ah, okay. Sam, if anyone is looking to contact you, how can they find you? Do you have a social media that you prefer? Do you do you want them to go through Killer Chess Training? Yeah, you can follow me on uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I have a contact form on my website for like lesson and tournaments and simul inquiries and stuff like that. Outstanding. Well, Sam Shankland, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for these outstanding articles in our September and our October issue. I think our readers are really going to love them. My pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Thank you.